Okay, good vach. I just want you to appreciate the fact that, you know, uh, how receptive we are to everybody's uh, concerns and interests. People were complaining last week that it was too hot, so we took care of that. We appreciate it. We lowered the temperature by about 20 degrees. So, uh, Hashem. <clears throat> I, wanna st- I, I have a couple of stories uh, I, I want to I wanna tell tonight, and, and uh, by way of introduction. The first is the following. Um, I'm working on a, on a cookbook. I, I, I've, people have been asking for years to put out a safer, so I'm, I'm putting out a cookbook. But uh, the story behind the cookbook is that uh, this Sivan, me and my wife will be married 40 years. And uh, my wife thanked me for 37 of the happiest years of her life. But anyway, so um, the, uh, but we, um, when I first got married, so there was another young couple. You know, you're, the young couples tend to meet each other, you know. And the wife, who I knew from NCSY, she was actually a regional director, she said to me, how do you make roast chicken? Well, I said, well, you know, I'll tell you how my mother taught me, you know. My mother had a method that was known as, it's easy, stupid, you know, because she would tell me to cook. I said, I don't know how. She'd say, it's easy, stupid. This is what you do. You know, cut up some onions, put the chicken in, put garlic and paprika, put it in the oven at 350, you know, and uh, you make roast chicken. She goes, thank you so much. She says, every cookbook that I ever bought has only, like, complicated recipes. Nobody tells you how to make the basic stuff. So I was working on a cookbook. My kids are begging me not to put it out. Um, based on the fact that people know how to make a lot of complicated things, but simple things, usually, they don't know how to make. And, uh, you know, my wife gets every Jewish publication that's out there, and I read through the recipe sections just to uh, reinforce what I already know, and that is people clearly have too much time on their hands, and they use, like, 19 steps to make something that I could make very, very simply, because that's how my mother taught me. It's easy. Most cooking should be easy. If it gets too complicated, you know, I was once uh, looking up a recipe for something, and I said to my wife, you'd never make this. So my wife was like, how do you know? I said, okay, shell the almonds, uh, blanch the almonds, peel the almonds, sliver the almonds, brown the almonds. She said, okay, stop. Okay, there's six steps just to get the almonds, and I'm not doing it. I said, I told you, you know. There's no reason for this, you know. Um, when I used to go to America years ago when, when you could travel before COVID. Anyway, so, um, uh, you know, uh, they, they have in Costco, that's Oshaad, um, they, you can buy a gigantic container of toasted sesame seeds. My kids get the sesame seeds and then they have to toast them and everyone always forgets about it and half the weeks they burn, you know, they, it comes a big, it's all done already, you know? Why make life more complicated for yourself, you know? Uh, I, I have, I try to find easy things, you know, like easy potato kugel. Go to my colet, buy a potato kugel. That's it. It's really very simple, you know? So uh, as much as possible, I like to make life easier, yeah? Um, I give that by way of introduction because we have been giving this year now for over 25 years. So you can make a quick cheshman that I probably done about 12 shiurim and parshas vayera. And um, uh, the truth is, that I usually look for something that's slightly obscure that most people don't talk about. And I work myself into a panic over the week before trying to find sources for it, you know. And uh, my wife says to me on more than one occasion, if no one talks about it, maybe there's a reason. So why do you have to be the one to, you know. 
So, uh, but I've never taken that advice. But I'm I'm old now, you know, and uh, uh, you know. So I I look back and I say, gee, it's it's easy, stupid. You know, why don't you talk about things that uh, everybody else talks about? And as I came to the parsha and I look over and I always look through, looking for a theme, I say, hey, you know, in all these years, I never talked about a kedus yitzchak. Uh, that's kind of a central theme in all of Yiddishkeit. It is pretty important. You know, I figure it fits in more to more of a Rosh Hashanah shir. And uh, certainly it's been talked about so many different ways and so many different times. What do I really have to add to the discussion? And, uh, and I remembered a story that happened. Um, if, if you follow the news, so you know that there was this woman who uh, her family became Bali Tshuva, and she became from, and she married a from guy, and she became a teacher, and they went to Kirov, and they were very involved. And at some point, she decided, "I'm not fulfilled. I'm not fulfilled. I'm not happy." You know that? And so she uh, gave up the from lifestyle, and she went into the fashion industry. And uh, she uh, uh, decided to uh, marry out of the religion, you know. And uh, I'm okay with that. I mean, I'm not happy about it, but okay. People make individual decisions. I may or may not agree with them, but okay. You know, Kudosh Baruch Hu gave everybody free will. But instead of just saying, look, I'm, I wasn't happy in my lifestyle. I wanted to live a Goyesha lifestyle. So Imamish gave up everything. She instead made it into a crusade. And she said, you know, I don't, uh, uh, Judaism is restrictive and Judaism is bad. And, Ju and she turned the whole thing into an attack on Judaism. But she never said that her problems were with Judaism. Her problems were with herself. She wasn't happy. So she decided to live another lifestyle. I'm okay, if you make that choice, you know, um, I, I feel like I may have mentioned this recently, I don't know, but, you know, uh, there was uh, a, a comedian known as Jackie Mason, right? His real name was Yaakov Meza. He got smicha from Moshe Feinstein, and uh, he was a practicing Rav, and uh, he gave many different reasons why he decided to give it up, but one of them was, he just said, listen, you know, I was a Baltaifa. And in all of his decades of performances, with so many jokes about Jews, he never put down Torah. He never put down Yiddishkeit. He never made fun of it. He, uh, he dedicated himself to the life that he wanted to live, which was a life of taifa. But he didn't try to make a philosophy out of it. Yeah? So this person, and, and I didn't can move on. I, I have no interest in, in, in watching this or giving this woman, this narcissist, any more airtime, you know, than, than she deserves, which is none, you know, I would say, did anybody at any point ask her one of two questions? Is there a God? Did he give the Torah? That's it. If so, it's true. I don't care if you're happy. I don't care if you're happy. My father, over Shalom, was, uh, and this is over 25 years ago, you know, they've made a lot of strides since, but my father had lung cancer. And they were giving chemotherapy, and it was, it was terrible. It was just terrible. He couldn't handle it. You know, he was getting sores in his mouth and terrible things. And, you know. 
I remember we went to ask this Kvera Rebbe. He heard there was some sort of a uh, virus treatment in Hungary. There was an alternative treatment. He wanted to go to Hungary and, and try that, you know. And he's speaking to him in Yiddish. My father, my father grew up in a Yiddish-speaking home. He's speaking to the Rebbe in, English, in Yiddish. And the Rebbe says to him in perfect English, show me three x-rays, before and after. And if you can show me that the virus therapy has actually shrunk the tumor, I'll advise other people. So my father said, so I have no choice. He says, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but this is the only thing that's been proven to shrink the tumor. Alpha P came, my father decided he couldn't do it anymore. He went off to Hungary, get the virus treatments. Kinnerat didn't help. Yeah. But he just couldn't take it anymore. But he doesn't have, but he never went around and said chemotherapy is a, is a, is a lie, the whole thing is a, fall, is a falsehood, it's a, it's, a, uh, it's a conspiracy, you know what I mean? I just can't handle it. I just can't handle it. But that doesn't mean it's not true. And whether or not I'm happy or I enjoy it, that doesn't change what the truth is. So uh, I, I, it's to the best of my knowledge, nobody ever asked her these questions. Because those are the only questions, as far as I'm concerned. Either Judaism is true, and you're a crazy person, or Judaism isn't true, and then, okay, I understand. You didn't leave Judaism because you weren't happy. You left because you figured out it wasn't true. Right? Um, it, it works in reverse as well. Right? There, you hear about these people who go away someplace for a nice Shabbos meal, and they meet nice people, and they decide to change their life around. You know, okay, I understand it. You know, uh, I, I, I can't relate to it. You know, I became from because I had a Rebbe who showed me that it was true. I wasn't looking for a life change at the time. I didn't see anything inspirational. Becoming from only caused problems in my life. But if it's Emmis, it's Emmis, you know? I remember my Rebbe, Yaakov Wales, that's all, you know, he would, he would um, uh, challenge us in all kinds of ways, you know? It was very confrontational. And, uh, and, and I, of course, I, you know, no one's going to tell me I'm wrong. You know, this was a that I had when I was younger, of course, now I'm so much more reasonable. But, you know, I, I would say to my friends, we got to fight with him. And they said, ignore him. I said, but what if he's right? They said, ignore him anyway. I said, I can't do that. If it's Emmis, it's Emmis. You have to follow the truth wherever it takes you, whether, whether the conclusion is good or not. You know? So if the doctor does all of his tests and he says, you want to know the results? And you say, I don't know. Are you going to tell me to eat healthy, exercise, and stop smoking? In that case, I don't want to hear it. He says, okay, we'll touch up the x-rays. You know? You're fine. You know? I don't want to hear the results if I don't like what, what the conclusion is. Yeah, so, so it comes down to whether or not you want to hear the Emmas, yeah. Now, this woman is not a new phenomenon. There have always been people like this. And in fact, years ago, I was doing a Pesach at Gateways, and there was one of these women there, everyone seemed to know who she was. She also grew up from, she was married to a from person, you know, and she, uh, you know, uh, she gave it up. And, uh, you know, her kids were still being raised from by her husband, but, you know, she had visitation, whatever it is, and, you know, she was doing the best she could to try to maintain some kind of relationship. So they, they came to Gateways. And uh, everyone knew about it. Uh, ironically, someone told me she's trying to get herself a, uh, a reality TV show. 
This is, of course, what anybody who makes major life decisions try to do, you know? If I, if I have a really grueling, difficult life decision, I'd like to become a reality TV show, you know? So, uh, so this is the whole thing. Anyway, we're doing the question and answer. And she asks the following question. How could any god ask a father to take his son up on a mountain and kill him? And how could any father ever agree to do this? Uh, I have to tell you that I have heard this sentiment echoed by other people, from people over the years. It is something which, if you try to think about it, is somewhat disturbing. Yeah. Um, when my son was little, he was in the car, and we were driving, and uh, he says, Abba, where are we going? So I said, well, that's the strangest thing. You know, last night a Kurdish Baruch Hu came to me and uh, told me I should take you up on a mountain and kill you. He goes, Abba, don't joke around. <laughs> I said, well, you think I'd joke about a thing like that? The knife's in the trunk. Go take a look. He was like, <laughs> anyway, uh, he, uh, he's recovered after years of therapy. But, but the, uh, obviously, you know, the, the idea of it is like, you know, to, to a, a, a regular mind, the idea sounds kind of bizarre. You know, take your son up a mountain and kill him. You know, it's like... The, the amazing thing is that, Yaakov, uh, that Avram Avinu's whole life was chesed. And you notice that a lot of the tests that he gets are the antithesis of chesed. Take your one son and kick him out of the house, send him off into the desert with a bottle of water, hope it doesn't run out. You know? Take your other son up a mountain and kill him. You know? Um, distinctly not uh, what you'd expect a person of chesed to be able to be asked to do in, uh, in, the, course of, uh, in the course of his career. And uh, not to mention the moral questions involved. The Medrash tells us that during this time he was having this unbelievable battle with the Yetzirah. That is the concept of Tashlich. Right? Because it says that uh, the river tried to drown him. It wasn't a physical river. It was a river of arguments. Uh, Avraham was being overwhelmed by the arguments. He had to ask a Kaddish Baruch Hu to save him. Because he says, Lo, after you do this, all those people we came from are going to give it all up. Because you know? you've been preaching to everybody that God is a God of love and he doesn't want human sacrifice. And then you're going to take your own son up a mountain and kill him. What do you think people are going to think about you and your God after this? You're going to lose everything you've tried to do. You know, listen, you're not that big a Navi. Don't flatter yourself. What if you got the message wrong? You know what I mean? What if you killed your son and it turns out that Hashem said, oh, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't mean to uh, bring him as a Corbin. I meant, you know, take him out uh, for a corned beef sandwich. You know, you got it wrong. Oh, man, what a terrible thing. Maybe this, maybe that. And, and he was so filled with doubts. And the Kush Baruch who promised him that Yitzchak is going to be Zarai and the entire nation is going to come out of him. And how does that stim with everything that's here? The experience had to be on an emotional and intellectual and, and, uh, and, and spiritual level. Such a, a grueling experience to be able to do this. 
to make it all the way up, to be able to do this thing. And that's why Kodesh Baruch Hu gave him three days. Nobody can accuse him of, you know, he acted on the, on the, on the spot in a moment of, uh, of emotional, uh, you know, turmoil. And only afterwards did he appreciate the consequences of what his decision was. No, plenty of time to think about it. Plenty of time to consider. Yeah? So, uh, so how, does a, how does a person... Uh, managed to go through this. This is the question that, that so many people ask. And would I kill my son? There is a prominent rabbi of a uh, city in Israel who used to write a column where he liked to be uh, provocative. And uh, he, uh, he had a tendency to misquote sources. Um, whether it was intentional or not, I don't know, but he would misquote sources. And he said, you know, that the Svasemis says that Avram actually failed the Akedah. And um, uh, because really, he should have begged HaKadosh Baruch Hu to save his son's life, uh, just like he begged HaKadosh Baruch Hu to save the evil people in Stom and Amor. Uh, and that's why HaKadosh Baruch didn't even want to talk to him afterwards. He sent the Malach to tell him to stop. There's a lot of problems with that approach. One is immediately afterwards HaKadosh Baruch showers him with brachas because of what he did. Um, every year on Rosh Hashanah, we beg HaKadosh Baruch to forgive us in the schus of this action. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of problems with saying that Avram failed the Akedah. But... Uh, but the, you know, the, the idea is it's, it's a provocative thing to say because people are like, gosh, how could, how, how, the, the same thing that this woman asked, how could a Kaddish Baruch Hu ask somebody to do this and how could any father ever actually do this to their child? That's the, uh, that's the challenge. So I, I want to offer up, at least on our own level, some sense of understanding of this concept, at least for ourselves. Um, I've, uh, I've had a lot of interesting positions over my lifetime. Uh, I've had uh, uh, many different careers. Uh, I was a youth director. I was a teacher uh, in an elementary school. I was a teacher in a high school. Um, I ran an NCSY chapter, then I became a regional director, uh, came to Israel, I taught in yeshivas, I taught in seminaries, uh, I taught in all kinds of different places, uh, I became a speaker, I have all kinds of you know, fascinating career changes, uh, which shows you two things, one, how multi-talented I am, and secondly, how incredibly unstable I am, both of which happen to be true. So, uh, but one of those jobs I had is I was teaching in discovery. And uh, they have a class there called the Five Levels of Pleasure. The purpose of the class is to try to uh, explain to people that the greatest possible pleasure is Avas Hashem. And uh, it's obviously um, coming out of the Mesil Susharm, which says the entire purpose of the world is lehis anega Hashem velehenois mizir chinosai which is translated more or less as we were created to get uh, pleasure from God and enjoy the divine light because that's the greatest pleasure and delight that there is. 
I would read this to any from audience, and I'd say, what did he say? Why were we created? And without hesitating, they would say, to serve God. And I say, nope, listen again. Yeah, to get pleasure from God and enjoy the divine light because that's the greatest pleasure and delight that there is. Why were we created? To get the divine light. Wrong. I'm sure I heard divine light. That's right. Now you have to listen to the entire sentence because that takes a lot. Most of us run out of patience. Uh, I make a podcast, and uh, it usually goes for about 30 minutes, and I've gotten two different complaints. Some people say, why is it so short? And other people say, why is it so long? People can't concentrate for half an hour. That's why people like things like meaningful minute. I can listen for about a minute. That's about it. So you better make it meaningful. <laughs> In fact, there was a, a master's psychology class, and uh, this uh, professor brings in someone to speak about uh, China. And the person's speaking for 10 minutes about China, and then the professor says, stop. Everyone write down what you were just thinking. Only one person was thinking about China, and he was thinking about how he'd like to go out and get Chinese food for lunch. That was it. Otherwise, people's, people's attention spans are completely shot. Yeah? And those uh, who have been in education know that when you teach in a high school, the number one answer to every question is, what? I'm, I'm sorry, what? What were you saying? What? You know? And people off in the middle of a conversation. Could you, I, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> so to be able to concentrate, it's kind of hard. So I said, no. Listen to the whole sentence. We were created to get pleasure from Hashem and enjoy the divine light because that's the greatest pleasure and delight that there is. Or, to translate that differently, we were created for X because X is the greatest possible pleasure that there is. But if Y is the greatest possible pleasure, or Z is the greatest possible pleasure, that's why we were created. Ledugma, I said, I'm going to the ice cream store, and I want to get you your favorite flavor. What is your favorite flavor? Butter pecan. Okay. Am I going to the store to get butter pecan, or am I going to get your favorite flavor, which happens to be butter pecan? But if it's fudge ripple, I'm going for fudge ripple. You understand? I'm not going because I want to get butter pecan. I want to get the best thing. So Kodesh Baruch Hu put you in this world for one reason, that's to get the greatest possible pleasure. When I teach this over, the first two lines of Ms. Ilsha Sharma, I teach it to firm audiences. The two questions that I get the most is, if this is true, why are you the only one saying it? <laughs> I said, it's not true. I'll show you as Rio Talber said it. I'll show you, uh, you know, Mashkiach Leikud, Matazio Solomon says it. I'll, I'll show you, uh, you know, I'll, I'll bring you sources that say exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. And the second question is they say, how come nobody's teaching this to our kids? Nobody's teaching us that we're in this world for one reason, to get the greatest possible pleasure. And Ramesha Shapiro used to say that that is the reason for so many problems that we're having in Kalaiso. Because if I tell a kid, and the kid says, I want to do X, Y, and Z, and we say, no, the Torah says you're not allowed to do that. And he says, well, why should I listen to the Torah? He says, because you're going to get this wonderful reward. Yeah? That's what Ramesha said. If I want to take something away from you, you got to prove to me that you got something better. And that's why we basically say, you know, well, 
if you keep the entire Torah, when you die, you'll get to the next world and, and it'll be really great and it's some kind of light and you'll float around and it'll be really nice. You know, I can't really describe it to you. But if you're not, I can explain to you Gehenna. That you can understand. <laughs> so most people, they're not really trying to get the greatest possible pleasure. They're trying to avoid going to Gehenna. You know? And uh, to, to tell people, no, we have something better than they have is, is, is mind-blowing experience. Most people believe that we were put into this world yeah, to serve Hashem. That's it. Avod is Hashem. That's why we're here. God needs us to serve Him. I was speaking in a seminary once on a Friday night, and uh, and a girl said to me, you know, uh, you know, well, we're in this world to serve Hashem. I said, why, Hashem needs you? Yeah, he needs us to daven to him and to do mitzvahs. I said, I thought Hashem is infinite. And if he's infinite, he doesn't need anything. So one girl, or Hashem was from New York, and she said, you mean my parents spent all this money in tuition and they're not telling me why I'm alive? I said, well, maybe you can get some of the money back and go shopping. You know what I'm saying? Uh, speak to the school, you know? Get it, you know? But obviously we're not here because Hashem needs us to daven to him or to do mitzvahs. He's infinite. He needs you to eat a matzah. He enjoys hearing the crunch. You know what I mean? Look, there's a seder over here. Crunch, crunch. Oh, another one over here. Crunch. Oh, I love this time of year, you know? Kosh Baruch doesn't need you to do mitzvahs. The Maharal says this very clearly. Um... Uh, when he talks about mitzvahs ben adam lachaveram ben adam he says the mitzvahs ben adam lamakom are all separate parashios. And the mitzvahs, excuse me, mitzvahs ben adam lamakom are all separate parashios. The mitzvahs ben adam lachaveram are all in one pasik. Not only that, in the second luchos, they're connected with vavim. Why? Because the connection between you and people is real. I can really mess up people. I'm not really going to hurt a Kodesh Baruch Hu. He's infinite. You don't have to worry about him. He's very secure. Wakes up in the morning, looks in the mirror, sees nothing. He feels very good about himself. Very high self-esteem, you know? You don't have to worry that you're going to get him angry and he'll bring a flood. You know, he, he's, in, he's in very emotionally stable. It's part of being infinite and all-powerful, yeah? So, um, uh, so the fact that that uh, people think we're just here for Avodah Hashem. It says clearly we're here to get pleasure. So that's the underlying principle of this class. Now, uh, I became a chapter advisor of NCSY in Los Angeles in 1978. I was tricked into taking a chapter. It was Mamish, it was a great trick. Um, the guy asked me if I'd get involved, and I said no. He said, well, then could you just do me a favor and go down for the interview? Because I told him I'd send them some candidates. I was like, okay. I go down for the interview. They interview me. They say, congratulations, you're hired. I felt stupid saying I don't want the job. And they'd be like, why'd you come for the interview? You know, it's a great, it's a great trick. Anyway, so I suddenly found myself, I was an NCSY uh, chapter advisor. I knew nothing about this organization. So I went into the regional office, and I read everything about NCSY for the past 10 years. I didn't realize I was now the second most knowledgeable person about NCSY in the entire West Coast. First was Lee Sampson, who started the organization, who had written most of the stuff I read, and then me. Most people had no idea what it was about. But I set out to find out about it, because that's how I am. I'm very curious. When, when you tell me something, I look into it. Yeah? Um, 
I, I, I'm a cynic. By nature, I'm a cynic. I'm a cynic when it comes to everything. And, uh, and I say, who says? You know, how do you know? About everything. I, try to, I really have always tried to take that approach to try to arrive at the Yamas. So, um, so I'm giving this class, yeah, the, uh, the five, uh, five levels of pleasure. And what are the five levels? First level is physical pleasure. Second level is love. The third level is meaning. The fourth level is power. And the fin final level is Avas Hashem. And they have all kinds of stories and illustrations to go along with it. But, you know, people said to me, where'd you get this from? It sounds like pop psychology. Now, I didn't know where it came from. Yeah, so I looked into it. And it turns out that they based it on the Sefer Chinuch and the Eschanan on the mitzvah of Avas Hashem. Now, full disclosure, I always had trouble with this because the logic is like this. The first level is money, but you'll trade money for love and you'll trade love for meaning and you'll trade meaning for power and, you'll, and power, you would trade it for Avas Hashem. That, that's the idea. And no one was able to explain power well. I heard uh, recordings of three or four top people giving this class. No one could explain power. Because who says? You, who says that to get power, I would give up meaning? Why is that a given? The others, I, I can explain. But who says it's true? So I asked, where'd this come from? Nobody knew. I kept tracing it back until they finally said, no, based it on the Sefer Chinuch. So I look at the Sefer Chinuch and it says, the way you get to Avas Hashem is by knowing that it's greater than Mamon, Banim, and Kavod. Okay. Mamon is money, is physical pleasures. Uh, kavod, I uh, said, Banim, okay, children, love. And, uh, and Kavod is meaning. Th there's nothing else there. So I search and I search and I search and I finally found they did an English translation of Sefer Chinuch. And in the footnote they said there is a girsa that says Banim, excuse me, Mamon, Banim, Kavod, Umem, Shola. That's where power comes from. And it says in the footnote that was a Torah cipher. It's a mistake. The word doesn't belong there. There's only four levels of pleasure. That's why nobody was able to explain the, the, the fourth level. And I sent this up the chain, and everyone said, yeah, okay. So, uh, so when I do it, I don't call it the four levels of pleasure, but there's only four to teach. And the four levels of pleasure, all of them make a lot of sense. People want money. We know this. People want money and the things that money can buy. I mentioned them earlier, the late Jackie Mason, he said, I have enough money to last me the rest of my life, unless I want to buy something. You know? But people want money and the things that money can buy. You know? Or as somebody once said, I don't need money as long as I can get everything that I want out of life. <laughs> I don't need the actual money. But what do people want? People want big houses, people want big cars. You know? Took one of my kids to, uh, to LA with me when I was speaking. What did he want to see? He wanted to go to one of these fancy car stores. They have very, very fancy cars in L.A., uh, more so than, let's say, in New York, even though there are a lot of wealthy people. I asked somebody why once, and they said because it snows and it and it's rains and it's really rough on a car. But in L.A., you know, it's not a problem. 
you know. Uh, you have to drive around the homeless people, but otherwise, you know, you, the weather is great for fancy cars. He's looking at these cars, you know. And of course, what? okay, it has no appeal to me, but I understand. People, you get a fancy car, and people are like, shh, look at that, you know. I, I uh, over the time of my speaking career, I have spoken in some very large, fancy houses, you know. And this is when, you have to remember, I moved to Israel, uh, 32 years ago, things were pretty standard, or since I'm here 32 years, I picked up Hebrew, standard, and um, it's getting easier and easier to speak Hebrew, it's just English with a bad accent, but uh, everybody had the balata floors, everybody had the whitewashed walls that when you leaned against it, it came off on your jacket, everyone's light fixture was a black wire with a light bulb hanging from it. You know, all of the commodes uh, had the box uh, six feet up in the air so that if you had to use the facilities, everyone in the surrounding neighborhood knew about it. You know, they had these little wooden windows that shook when it when it. Everybody had the same, the same thing. Things were very standard. I walk into houses. I said, you know, you're, I'm, I'm looking for that little board like they have in the mall. You are here, you know what I mean? So you can walk yourself around. I'm looking at, you know, uh, paintings by the most famous artists in history, such fancy things, you know. People, people want to have a big house, people want to have nice things, fancy car, nice clothes, you know. People want stuff, people want that and they want the money that gives them the option to be able to do it. And even people who have a lot of money, they still want more money, you know. Uh, you find people who uh, who are billionaires, multi-billionaires, they still go to work every day, they're still making more money, you know, there's, there's, that's the nature, you know, people want more, when is it enough? When do you have enough? It's, it's, uh, so, so that's so much of what people want. And when you ask people when they're younger about their dreams and aspirations, I want to have a big house, I want to have a big car, I want to be a millionaire, I want to be, you know, oh, that's, I'm young, I want to be a billionaire, you know, a millionaire, you can barely pay your bills today, you know, I want to be a billionaire, I want to be this, I want to, you know, these, these are the aspirations people have. And then they get married, and they decide to have kids. Not everybody, some people decide they're going to have kids. I've asked secular people why they have kids. I've never really gotten a good answer to this question. We have children because, you know, as a Kurdish Baruch who says to our, says about Avram Avinu in this week's parasha, I know he's going to have children and he's going to bring them up, you know, to keep my, to keep my ways and to keep my laws and keep my word. I understand. We have, we have a cause. We're having children because we understand that, you know, we've been given a mission from Avram Avinu, who passed it down to his children, to his children, to his children, and we're continuing a mission. We're bringing up our children with a sense of mission, hopefully. Hopefully we are, hopefully we're passing on that sense of mission to our children. I, I, I tell parents, you know, sometimes they tell me that they have a kid who's not off the derech, but they're heading in that direction. Uh, one parent told me something so incredibly painful. She says, you know, my kid is having trouble. I'm afraid the kid's going to go off. I called all these organizations and they said, uh, is your son on drugs? I said, no. I said, is he on the street? I said, no. He goes, we can't help him. Call me when he is. You know, even though an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, a pound of cure, as they say, 
in English, or as they say in Chazal, if you unload the donkey, it takes one person. After the donkey's collapsed, it takes 10 people to get him back up. So uh, you'd think prevention would be a thing, but you know, unfortunately, kids see when a kid goes off the derech, everybody would do anything for this kid. They'll spend any money, take him on trips, do anything for him. When a kid is still with the program but isn't doing so well, all we have for him is contempt. I'm sorry to say. There's, there's not a lot of resources available for just a good kid to keep them from, from getting into trouble, you know? When I was uh, in education, they used to say that 10% of the kids get 90% of the attention, you know? And a nice, normal kid, when I was in yeshiva, uh, a friend of mine told me, I think I'm gonna kill myself. I said, why? Because I don't know how else to get an appointment with the Rosh Hashiva. You know, unless you're having some major life crisis or there's something terrible going on, and no one has any time for you. Yeah. So, uh, which I think is a pity. But, um, uh, so I tell them, get them involved in a project. Tell them to get involved in a chesed organization. Have them learn with, a, with, a, with another kid. Have them do something. Let them get involved in something where they feel important. Because people need to feel that they're needed and they need to feel important and they need to feel that they have a sense of mission. And I always say, I started in the Hebrew Academy of Nassau County in 1964. I was coming from a conservative family. Right? But I would say 98% of the kids were coming from conservative families. There weren't orthodox communities in Long Island. I went to a conservative synagogue, the Eastman Jewish Center. They sent busloads of kids to hang. You know, people were all coming from, from non-from backgrounds. And the fact that you chose and your family chose to send you to an Orthodox school, the message you got is you are a hero and you're saving Torah. It was such a powerful message. And if you messed up, you, you know, they couldn't throw you out. There weren't enough of us. They needed you and they sent you that message that we need you. Today, every kid gets a message. Overtly or covertly. We don't need you here. Step out of line and you're gone. I got three people waiting for your spot. You know? So we don't need people. So people feel like I'm not needed. So they don't have that sense of mission that Avraham gave to Yitzchak and Yitzchak gave to Yaakov and Yaakov gave to the Shvatim. And the, and the, the, the Jewish people have passed down throughout history and every Jew says to his son, Yes, we're suffering oppression and economic hardship and maybe exile and maybe death, but it's worth it because we're on a mission. We're doing something in this world. We're the Am HaNivchar. God chose us to change the world. Most people don't believe that. Most from Jews don't believe that we're in this world to change the world, that I'm going to make a difference. I had a girl, second year in seminary, she says to me, we get these lists of names of people to daven for, and I daven for them, and sometimes they get better and sometimes they die, but it's got nothing to do with me. They really don't believe that they're the ones who make life better, that they're the ones who can change things around, because who cares what I do? Nobody feels that Avram Avinu, who's there, the Eva Echad, I'm on one side and the entire world's on the other side, and I'm going to save the world. People don't believe that. So I asked him, why do you have children? No, I want somebody to love me. Let's get a puppy. They'll love you much more. They'll never tell you afterwards how you ruined their life. 
They'll never give you the silent treatment. They'll never slam the door. You know what I mean? They'll, they'll, they'll be very nice to you. They'll wag their tail. They'll bring you your slippers. They'll be so happy to see you, you know? So I want to leave something behind me. I said, oh, you believe in Olam Haba? Uh, no, then who cares? You're going to return to the dirt from which you have come and in which you have sprung. You will never remember anything. What do you have to leave anything behind you for? And uh, it's hard for them to answer. But whatever the motivation is that people decide to have children, children are expensive. Every year they put out one of these things. How much does it take to raise a child from birth until uh, you know, they graduate from college? You know? and, and it's always some astronomical figure. It's almost impossible. Right? We in the firm community understand that it's not true because we also have to buy apartments. But anyway, but uh, you know, when, you, when you look at like uh, raise a child, and then you have another child, and you have another child. Why would you do this? You've worked so hard for your money. You know? My mom, <laughs> oh, Michelle, she was a wonderful person, but she had a little bit of an edge, you know? And um, uh, so, uh, you know, she grew up, she and my, my father grew up in the Depression. The worst thing you could do is waste throw things around. They, they, to them, money was, was the difference between life and death. If you didn't have any money, you couldn't buy food. My father dropped out of school to, to go to work to help support his family because there was no food to eat. You know, uh, A friend of mine said to me, uh, when you open a container of cottage cheese, do you scrape the cottage cheese off of the foil? I said, of course. He says, when you break an egg, do you go around the inside with your finger to pull out the little bit? I said, well, of course. He goes, yeah, my kids don't do that. <laughs> they, grew up, they grew up in a world with such plenty. They don't understand what, what real hunger is, what real deprivation is. It's, it's such, a, such a difficult thing, you know? And so uh, to my mother, they're wasting. So she looks at my kids and they, she considers them very wasteful, you know, certainly by her standards. So... Uh, so I had a trip to America. It happened to have been a good trip, you know. I had a lot of uh, engagements. And I said to my mother, oh, it was a good trip. You know, I made, I made a nice amount of money. And she says to me, yeah, when you get home, your kids are just going to spend it all. I said, listen, I know people don't have any children. They get to keep all the money for themselves. Aren't they lucky? My mom's like, ah, ah, <laughs> She always hated it when I appealed to her better nature because she was a very generous person. But, you know, it was, uh, I think it was more of a habit than anything else, you know. But uh, you have to, you know, when you, get, when you get into a particular way of thinking, you know. Uh, so people decide to have children. It's going to cost them a lot of money. Not to mention the amount of effort. It takes a lot of effort to take care of kids. You know? Three o'clock in the morning, the kid comes in. I was sick. I threw up in my bed. You know, can you come and change it? Can you take care of me? You know, can you this? Can you do that for me? You know, it takes a tremendous amount of effort. You know, someone who really hates you will buy your kid a very large Lego set. And what small children like to do is pour it on the ground. And then they pull out the Lego encyclopedia and they say, make me this. Now, of course, fathers are genetically programmed to rise to challenges. You know, um, John Gray, who wrote Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus, 
who's much more of an expert on marriage than I am. He was married four times. I've only been married once. So uh, he says, you can listen in the way that people speak. When a, you ask a woman to do something, she says, it'll be my pleasure. When you ask a man, he says, no problem. Can do, Captain. You know that? So he brings it out and says, make me this. And the father gets down on the floor and starts making, you know, the Lego horse, you know, and, and the kid leaves. But you're not going to stop because you're halfway through already, you know. And your wife's like, um, you know, the guests have come for company, you know, for, for dinner. And he goes, yeah, I'll be there in a minute. I'm looking for this piece here. <laughs> you know, and the amount of time and effort so that when they get older, they can say, you never did anything for me in my whole life. <laughs> you were never there for me. <laughs> I was like, and uh, it's really hard uh, to, to be a parent. But we're doing it because we're on a mission. We're passing on the mission that we got from our parents to our children, and our hope is that they'll pass it on to their children. And that's, the, that's all that we can ask for. Yeah. But we're going to sacrifice what he calls mammon, or what they call first-level pleasure, for love. You're going to trade your money for your kids. Now, my yom. A parent will tell their child, yeah, um, the Jewish people are under attack. I want you to join whatever the defense force is to be able to protect the Jewish people. Happens all the time throughout history, yeah? It's not just now that there's a state of Israel. It happened before it, you know, when they would ask Jews to join in the common defense. I'll tell you a disturbing story because I like to share disturbing stories. Um, Rabbi Foyer, he told me this story. He says he was in the Chaim Berlin base Medrash, and uh, this Rav tells him a story about a Vigda Miller. Now, you know already, it's an Vigda Miller story, it's going to be disturbing. <laughs> okay, full disclosure. Anyway, he, his shul was officially a young Israel, and he was at a young Israel convention, and somebody was speaking, and they were saying Kfira. Now, there's different ways of reacting to it. Rabbi Yosher Be'er Soloveitchik, when someone at the RCA convention was saying apikursus, and he was very disturbed, he said to him, what you're saying is akin to espousing the principles of communism at a Republican convention. I mean, you could tell he was really upset. I mean, he really went overboard. <laughs> <laughs> that was from Magic. He was the master of understatement, yeah? But Victor Miller had a different approach. He walked up and punched the guy out. <laughs> One punch knocked him unconscious, yeah? Now, we can argue whether or not that was the best approach to take or not, but that's what he did. And, uh, and as he's telling over this story, there's an old rub there who starts crying. And he says, my hi, he says, I was there. And as I was walking up, he tapped me on the shoulder and said, come with me. And I was too embarrassed to go. So, uh, so someone said, Vigda Miller, how did he know, you know, how to knock someone out with one punch? I mean, like, you know, it, he could do that with, his, with his, his speech, but how could he do that physically? You know, it's a particular skill. So he says, the altar of Slobodka told him to do it. Was meant. So in Slobodka, the boys used to like to go down to the river to go swimming. And uh, these anti-Semites used to start up with them. And uh, the yeshiva guys, you know, 
Self-defense is not one of their strong points, right? Occasionally, you have somebody who's a little different, who actually knows, you know. Uh, there was this legend when I went to Chavetz Chaim about this guy Lisker. He was a black belt in karate, you know, and he, uh, he would take out three people at a time, you know. Anyway, I was in North Hollywood in L.A. I'm on my way to Shul Shabbos morning, and I see these two guys with swastikas, you know, and they're like accosting two of the guys from the yeshiva, and I see one of them is Liska. So I figure, Psh, I could be a big shot because I know that you know, he'll save the day, you know? So I start confronting these guys, and I get in their face, and they say, we're going to kill you, you know what I mean? They have the beer bottles, they're going to, you know, yeah. And suddenly a cop car comes up and arrests the two of them, and take them away. So one of the guys says to me, he goes, wow, I didn't know you were so brave. I said, eh, I figured Liska's here. He said, that's my brother. Anyway, so uh, I almost got killed. But um, <laughs> it's always good to check people's first names before you decide to put yourself in a life-threatening situation. Anyway, so, um, uh, so I'm, uh, you know, uh, the, he, he, they would start up with the yeshiva guys. So the altar told Vigda Miller, I want you to learn how to defend these guys. So he took up boxing. And he used to box. He became a really good boxer. So he'd go down to the river, and when they would come in, he would knock out like four of them. And after a while, they learned to leave the yeshiva guys alone. That's what he would do. So he knew how to do it. So there have always been people who have been willing to put themselves into a situation to be able to defend other Jews. And you can imagine a parent would tell a child, I want you to go out and fight on behalf of the Jewish people but I might get killed. I might get killed. That's true. That's true. You might get killed. But you gave up all of your money. You took all of your mammon and you transferred it for bonim. You took all of your money and you gave it to love. But there's something greater than love that's called meaning. And throughout history, people have followed the example of Hannah and her children who were willing to give up their lives for HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Josephus writes that the Romans could not believe this, that there would be Jews who would give up their lives for what they believed in. And he writes that they would capture Jews and try to get them to serve Avodah Zarah, and they would torture them to death because they couldn't believe that anybody would give up their life for it. This used to be automatic. I would say to a group, you know, I had a story I would tell, and I would say, when I ask you a hard question, what do you do if someone puts a gun to your head and says, convert or die, what would you do? And almost always they would say, I would let myself get killed. And one time, it was about four years ago, five years ago, I say, I want to ask you a hard question. What do you do if someone puts a gun at your head and says, convert or die? And someone in the group says, why is that a hard question? Of course you wouldn't kill yourself. What for? And I said, even that's gone today? And yet throughout history, the Jewish people wouldn't be here if there weren't people who are willing to die for what they believed in. There's a story. 
I heard it from Pesach Kron. This uh, Israeli fellow is, uh, calls his wife. He says, I'm on the way home from work. So he says, uh, you know what? Why don't you pick up the children's fav- favorite uh, dinner? What's their favorite dinner? Basa Lavan. For you, those of you who are not familiar, it's what they call in America the other white meat. Yeah? It means pork. <laughs> My father came to Israel the first time in... Uh, 1968, January 1968, six months after the Six-Day War. I don't know where he was. He walked into a restaurant, and he's looking at the menu, and there's something called white steak. So he calls over the guy. He says, what's this? He says, it's a pork chop. He says, a pork chop? He says, I wouldn't eat that in America. He says, how could you serve that? You've got Hebrew writing on the store. (laughs) You know, my father grew up. If you say Hebrew writing, it means it means kosher. You know what I mean? Like you know, you know you have Hebrew writing. You serve me that, yeah. So she says, uh, pick up the children's favorite dinner. So he's waiting in line in this tray for butcher, and he suddenly comes back to him a story that his father used to tell him. His grandfather was in the concentration camp, and he managed to keep kosher during the entire war. And now the Russians were coming, and the Nazis were pulling out. And they knew this guy had always eaten kosher. And they line up the the prisoners, and they bring this guy up in the front. And they say, we're leaving. You'll never see us again. And the Russians are going to liberate you. And I know you've never eaten non-kosher. And they bring out a piece of pork and say, eat this, or we're going to shoot you in the head. He says, I've never eaten tray for my life. He says, eat this one piece of treif. We're going to leave. You'll never see us again. Or die. He says, I've never eaten treif in my life. He says, this is the last chance. He says, I've always kept kosher. And they shoot him. And he dies. And suddenly this comes to his grandson, who was totally secular. And he says, my grandfather gave up his life for this, for a reason that I have no idea. And I'm going to bring it home to his, his great-grandchildren? So he buys something else instead. He goes home and he looks up. Somehow he finds Arachim. And he says to Arachim and he tells him over the story. And the fellow is an intellectual and they have a very long conversation. He goes to a seminar, he goes to a Shabbos and he is convinced. And he says, why aren't you telling people about this? He says, well, we're doing the best we can. We don't have any money. And this guy became the president of international Arachim to be able to help them spread this message. But the fact that throughout history, people were willing to die for what they believed in? There are people who believe Judaism is about being a nice person. You have to be a nice person. Yeah. Uh, Don't kill, don't steal. Yeah. Max I. DeMont, in his History of the Jews, writes in his conclusion, with the destruction of the temple, Judaism lost one-third of Judaism. Uh, The temple sacrifice, the laws of purity. With the advent of the reform movement, they got rid of the second-third, 
all of the ritual laws. And now they're left just with the moral laws. That was his prediction for Judaism. Didn't quite work out that way. Because as I've asked reformed people, why should I be a Jew? You know, why should I be a reformed Jew? They said, because orthodoxy is this and orthodoxy is that. I said, okay, you explain to me why I shouldn't be an orthodox Jew. Why should I be a reformed Jew? Because orthodoxy is this. I said, okay, you convinced me. I'm done. I'm out. Now, why should I become a reformed Jew? Well, all the moral teachings. So be a secular humanist. You don't believe in the Bible, right? You don't believe in all the miracles, right? You don't believe in a personal God, right? So just be a, just be a nice guy. What do I have to be a Jew for? Such a hard question to answer. But if a person believes that, would you give up your life for it? Is that worth dying for? Mati Berger says, this Reconstructionist rabbi once said, you know, I was speaking about intermarriage, so obviously this is a very old story, because of course now there's nothing wrong with it, but he says, someone said to me, well, you're a racist. What do I answer him? He says, you are a racist. He says, but you teach people not to intermarry. He goes, I know, but I believe in it. You don't believe in it. You're just a racist. I believe that God gave us a message and gave us a mission, and we're carrying on something in this world. So if God comes and says to me, I want your child, make no mistake about it. Every one of us gives our children to what we believe in. We sacrifice our children. I had a guy in Or Sameach. He was one of three boys. They all intermarried. He eventually got divorced. He found his way to Israel. He ended up in Or Sameach. And I said to my mother, I said, did it bother you that all your kids intermarried? She said, yeah. I said, why didn't you ever say anything? She says, I didn't want to impose my values on my children. And he looks at me and he says, you know, Rabbi, I once used a bad word for a black person and she washed my mouth out with soap. So she doesn't mind imposing some values. She used to have parents who say, well, I'm not going to give my kids a Jewish education. I'll let them decide. I said, oh, so if your kid says, I decide I don't want to learn math, you're okay with that, right? No, math is important. Ah. It's not a question that you're so tolerant and open-minded. You just don't care about Judaism. But every one of us makes decisions that are going to affect our children's well-being. Whatever is important to us, we have no problem imposing on our children. So when a Kodesh Baruch comes to Avram and says, I want your son, Avram has a choice. He could say, no, no. There's a limit, God. I'll give you only so much of my life, but to there, not. Or he could say, Avas Hashem is greater than Mamon Bonim Vekovoid. I'm willing to sacrifice my children for a cause that I believe is important enough for the world. The people who don't understand the idea of dying for Judaism, I say the following. Your son's been kidnapped, and the kidnappers say, we will uh, release your son if you blow up that kindergarten and kill 50 innocent children. Would you do it? That I haven't found anyone yet who says yes. 
I said, but it's your son. Don't you love your son? And the answer is yes. But there are some things I'm not prepared to do. Even for the love of my son. Avas Hashem means that if we have a life of meaning with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, lehis anega Hashem v'lehenos mezir shchinasai, it's the greatest possible thing in this world. No, I'm not always going to understand everything. It ended up in the end, the Kodesh Baruch Hu explained everything to him. But at the time, I'm not always going to understand everything. The question is, is my money more important to me than a Kodesh Baruch Hu? Are my children more important to me than a Kodesh Baruch Hu? Is what I consider to be meaningful more important than a Kaddish Baruch Hu? Or is a Kaddish Baruch Hu the greatest possible thing? And at that moment, that's when Avram Avinu became the father of the Jewish people. That's when he passed the 10th test. That's when he brought HaKadosh Baruch Hu into the world. And now Rivka's born. Now he can marry off his child and start a nation with the Akedas Yitzchak, with the fact that more than anything, my dedication to HaKadosh Baruch Hu comes first. And that's what a, a Jew has always said. I don't always understand everything. I don't always like the way things turn out. I've had to make sacrifices in my life, whatever they may be. Obviously, if you're at this, in the Shir, you're probably not a native Israeli. You made a choice at some point to give up a life of relative comfort and move to the Middle East. Yeah? And it wasn't because you thought you were going to have an easier lifestyle. It wasn't for the friendly people and the considerate drivers. Yeah, that's not why I came. I came because what a Kodesh Baruch Hu wants me to do is more important than anything else that goes into my life. And Amir Hashem, this tremendous foundation that was genetically put into every Jew, and so any Jew who gives up their life in history did it because of the Akedas Yitzchak, did it because of that strength. The fact that we imbue our children with a sense of mission, and we have to make hard decisions sometimes for our children, that they should be people who are part of the mission that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave us, all of that comes from this final test of Abraham where he could have that amuna that HaKadosh Baruch Hu sets the stage and knows what's best for us to be able to make those decisions. And Mirza Hashem, we will strengthen that amuna because we need that strength to get us through. I mentioned this uh, uh, story, I'm sure, that when the Twin Towers came down, that Sukkot, I was by Ramosha Shapiro, and, uh, and he was saying that this is the start of Gogamogog, and it's the end, and everything's coming, and I said, at the time, I was teaching Nor Samach, I said, so you know, these guys come in, and we usually, you know, tell them, you know, slowly take on mitzvahs, make small changes. Should I tell them, listen, the jig is up, you know, this is it. You better get from real fast, because you haven't got that much time left. He just gave me a look. He never yelled at me. He would yell at other people. He didn't yell at me because he knew I was a baby. But uh, as I was leaving, he goes to me, David, Bemet, you have to do it the way that we've always done it. Ain od 
You have to understand there's only HaKadosh Baruch Hu in this world, and that's how I have to make my decisions. That makes the difference. I assume he was making reference to his Rebbe, the Briska Rav, who explains the way he survived the Holocaust and got out was by just focusing on En Od Milavadai. As long as he focused on that, the Nazi guards would walk right past him. They wouldn't ask to see his passport. He just, as long as he said, there's nothing in this world but a Kaddish Baruch Hu, he was successful. It's up here that we have to integrate a Kedis Yitzchak and that Amuna to be able to strengthen ourselves in what it is that we need to do. And Mir Hashem will do that strength and draw upon that energy to be able to get ourselves through this final phase of Klai Yisrael's history. Give